It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 63, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guests today, Rachel Armstrong and Cassie Noltnerwies, join me to talk about employment law. Rachel founded the nonprofit Farm Commons, a legal resource for sustainability-minded farmers, in 2012, and Cassie owns Crossroads Community Farm in Cross Plains, Wisconsin. And they both joined me for this episode to talk about the legal side of employees and other workers on the farm. Rachel started her career working on farms and in community gardens before she transitioned into doing nonprofit and advocacy work for sustainable agriculture. She decided to go to law school when she realized that the resources didn't exist to answer the kinds of questions small-scale and local growers were asking. Today, Farm Commons offers a variety of legal resources for farmers, from land use and business transfer to employment and contract law. Cassie owns Crossroads Community Farm with her husband, Mike. They raise about 20 acres of vegetables sold through a CSA farmer's market and wholesale to grocery stores and restaurants in nearby Madison, Wisconsin. Now in their 12th year of business, Crossroads has up to 10 full-time employees at the peak of the season. And while Cassie doesn't have any formal business training or law training, she had learned a lot along the way as the business has developed and grown. Together, Rachel and Cassie dig into the nitty-gritty parts of the legal side of having employees on the farm. We take a look at contractors versus employees, managing volunteers, workers' compensation, minimum wage, overtime, navigating federal state laws, payroll taxes, unemployment insurance, and if you can believe it, even more. I thought this was a really informative episode. I learned a ton about how things work on the employment side of things, even though I've had employees forever, and I think you're going to enjoy it and get a lot out of it, too. Thank you for joining us for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by FarmFan. Ever wish you could text a reminder to all of your customers? FarmFan does just that, increasing market turnout and sales week after week. FarmFanApp.com or see farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash sponsors for 25% off your six or 12 month subscription. Rachel Armstrong and Cassie Noltnerweiss, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So this is a, once again, breaking some new ground for the podcast where we're actually getting people from two different organizations on the call today. Rachel, you're with Farm Commons, which is now based up in Duluth, Minnesota. And Cassie, you're with Crossroads Community Farm, which actually isn't that far for me where I'm located here in Madison, Wisconsin. You're just over in Cross Plains. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if we could just start off, Rachel, by having you tell us a little bit about Farm Commons, that would be, a, I think, a great way to start off the show. Well, absolutely. So Farm Commons is a nonprofit uh, legal resources organization, and uh, it really it grew out of my experience in farming and uh, food system development. I grew up in rural northern Minnesota, and I always loved farming and always uh, wanted to make my career in in that realm. Um, and I did I did a ton of different things to pursue that that dream, um, worked on farms, worked for nonprofits that did farmy things. Uh, and all of it was really fun. But I was inspired to to go to law school because I found that we had a lot of persistent legal questions. And, you know, I would get these questions and have nowhere to go for answers. And so I realized, well, okay, somebody should, uh, you know, should try to solve this problem. Um, and that's how Farm Commons came about. So we, primarily, we provide legal education to farmers. And uh, most of it's all free and on our website. Great. And the website is www.farmcommons.org. 
And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So I just, I mean, I have to ask, you actually went to law school to become a lawyer for farmers. Definitely, definitely. I never in a million years thought that I would become an attorney. It was it was just not something um, I dreamed I would do. I, I knew my career would be in farming. Um, and it was really out of a desire to try to be more useful and provide real tangible value that wasn't already out there um, in the community. And this was this was the biggest need that that I saw. And it's kind of funny because, you know, law school is a huge investment. And I probably should have thought about it a little harder before I went. And I had this moment when I, uh, I'd been in law school for about a month and a half. Um, I went home after a long day at school, sat down on my couch and thought, oh my God, thank goodness. I like this because I really did not, uh, I didn't do a lot of research. I just knew, okay, this is a need and I'm going to make it happen. Uh, and I've been very lucky in some respects that uh, I absolutely love figuring out how the law applies to, um, to farm operations, particularly direct to consumer and sustainable farms. It's, it's really interesting work and, uh, it's, it's becoming of more and more concern to farms as we, as we grow and uh, become more innovative and diversify. There are a lot of legal concerns. Concerns. So it's it's a rich and really enjoyable way to stay connected to the the farming community that I love. Great, thanks, Rachel. And and Cassie, do you want to give us an introduction to to yourself and the Crossroads Community Farm? Sure. Um, so my name is Cassie Noltner Weiss, and I uh, own and operate Crossroads Community Farm with my husband Mike Noltner Weiss, and we are a uh, CSA farm primarily, uh, about 60% of our farm goes to CSA. And then we also direct market to uh, one farmer's market primarily in the Madison area. And then we wholesale to grocery stores and restaurants in the area. Um, most of our food, actually almost all of our food, it doesn't go any more than 20 miles from where it's grown to where it's consumed. Uh, so we're all we're pretty uh, focused right here in the Madison area. We're a diversified vegetable farm. We have about 20 acres in total. Um, and at our peak part of the season, so if you're looking at, you know, sort of the June, July, August part of the season, we have 10 full-time uh, employees at the peak. So that's eight folks working in the field and typically two to three that are hired on to help with our farmer's market. Uh, and that's sort of, I'm, I'm saying that in terms of its relevance for a conversation later today. And uh, my, uh, the reason I'm part of this talk today uh, is that like many, 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 many farmers, <laughs> I don't have any formal business training. I don't have any formal law training. I sort of fell into farming and uh, do this with my husband and have been learning along the way. And certainly there's things that I did at the very beginning that I now know, oh, well, that wasn't necessarily truly following the letter of the law. And you learn the law and then you move forward. And then you learn another piece of the law and you move forward. And um, this is our 12th season. And so when we were starting as a farm, that vacuum of kind of that legal resource that Rachel mentioned, it certainly was felt. We we didn't have anywhere to go to get answers. And now, uh, if you go to Rachel's website, so many of the questions that took me hours to figure out <laughs> at the beginning uh, and lots of phone calls and confusion are now really uh, spelled out and answered. So it makes it a lot easier for people getting started to know what their legal uh, obligations are. 
I think this is true of, of any interface with with regulations. A lot of times just knowing what are the questions that I need to ask is almost the hardest part, knowing even that there are questions <laughs> that you need to ask about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so. That's absolutely ahead, right, Rachel. Chris. And, uh, you know, a lot of people might be disappointed when they go to farmcommons.org that there aren't necessarily clear answers spelled out in all areas. And that's because, you know, farm law is a huge beast. Uh, and a lot of times it really is about knowing the right questions to ask, whether it is um, of a regulator or of an employee or an insurance agent or, or something like that. But just having a grasp of the outline of, of the, the, the subject is, is really what farmers need to move forward. So Rachel, what questions should we be asking as farmers who are, who are hiring people to come work on our farm? <laughs> Uh, that's that's a really good question. Um, you know, and if I could steer you in a slightly different direction, Chris, and for your for your listeners, the first thing to keep in mind is that this can be really overwhelming. But don't let that uh, don't let that stop you. If we were to run through all the questions you need to ask, people would go. Um, you know, they put their hands over their ears and um, run crying to the far corners of their fields. We don't want that. That's an, and that's not necessary. We we learn as we go, just like Cassie did. Um, we take the bits of information, we figure out how they're going to work for our farm, and continue to move forward um, in uh, doing what we can. Um, and it's really it's about risk management and about making careful choices for for your farm. And that's what farmers do every day. And farm law really isn't isn't different. And employment law, although employment law, you know. It's exceptionally beast-like amongst the many um, areas of law that we could get into. But still, we, we got to take it from a, okay, we can do this and we can make this work for, um, for our farm. And I think, you know, that's a huge part of what Cassie um, can contribute to this, this conversation is the way that they've made the mechanics of employment law, made their obligations really work for the farm and uh, not just be a rote burden, you know, the man telling you what you got to do. So let's dive in. I mean, where, when we're, when we're in this whole world of employment law, who, who are we talking about here? Who's, who is an employee? Oh, that's a, that's a really great place to start. Who's an employee? Uh, You know, let's, we can start off with some, um, we can start off with some myths right away. So first, a lot of folks use an independent contractor classification. Now, this is super common, not just in farming, but in all areas of business. You know, big businesses, small business, multinational corporations, they're all using independent contractors. This is really popular because you can save a lot of money that way. You're not responsible for uh, your payroll tax obligations, um, for um, tracking minimum wage, workers' compensation, those sorts of things. So it's it's very popular, but it is definitely legally problematic, and people get in trouble all the time for doing this too. And, and that's kind of the part we don't talk about as much, what the, the bad things that can happen if you misclassify your employees as independent contractors. So Well, and so Uber has everybody that works for Uber as an independent contractor, right? I mean, why can't, why can't right. we do that too? Perfect example. Perfect example. I mean, Uber is viable only because they uh, classify everyone as an independent contractor. But we, we know about that because that has gone to court and because they have, uh, they've 
had their hands slapped and they're going through the appeals process um, on whether or not they are independent contractors. Um, and, you know, that hints at a, at a complex area of law as to who is and is not an independent contractor. And it really comes down to the level of control that the, uh, the boss has over the, um, over the employee or contractor. The greater the level of control, uh, the more likely that person is an employee. What do you mean by that level of control? So you exercise control over a person when you tell them when to show up. When you tell them what to do, you tell them how to do their tasks and the tools to use to accomplish those tasks. That's all control. Lack of control is like hiring a plumber to come to your house. You know, they, they, you don't, you, you know, you don't sit there and tell them which pipe wrench to use and how exactly to do their job. They do it and then they leave and you pay them. Um, and that's it. Right. But if, so if I'm, if I'm hiring a, a, well, from what you've said, if I'm hiring somebody to come work on my farm, if I, you know, hire a teenager to come out and and hoe uh, three afternoons a week, that person probably isn't an independent contractor because I'm probably giving them the hoe that they're going to use. And I'm probably the only person they're working for. And I'm telling them when to be there. But I'm curious. I know a lot of farmers tell have crews of oftentimes migrant labor crews or, you know, folks that that weren't born in the States and who are coming out to their farm, either in small groups or en masse, particularly to do jobs like like hand weeding or bean harvest. And I know that a lot of those folks are being treated essentially as independent contractors. And that's a different situation. Those folks may be, and there is another body of law that controls um, the uh, wage payments and responsibilities towards work crews. Uh, and those fall under migrant worker laws. Uh, and oftentimes the migrant worker laws apply whether or not they are what we think of as migrants. Um, if you're working on a contract basis with a crew, um, and especially if those folks don't consider your state their residence, um, then a whole nother set of laws apply in addition to potentially independent contractor laws. On our farm, I can say that we've never hired someone in an independent contractor uh, situation or status. Because basically, if you look at the rules, um, you know, we're telling our people when to show up, when to leave. We're telling them what to do. We're giving them the tools that they have to do it. They may have some flexibility, you know, down the row, how they harvest one thing or manage, you know, how they're actually going to get it into the shed. But the overall process of, let's say, harvesting the lettuce, getting it out of the field, getting it in the shed, hydro cooling it and getting it in the cooler for storage. My husband and I are all the way down the line dictating how that job is going to happen kind of start to finish. And so um, the people who work for us, they are not independent contractors. Um, it, no matter how you strike it, they just aren't. They are employees. And so in most farm situations, uh, that's how employees are. Now, it's a question of risk. And Rachel will probably be the first one to tell you this, that there are certainly farms who will hire folks and call them independent contractors. And to the letter of the law, they aren't, but they're taking the risk to do so. It's kind of like speeding. You know, you can say, well, the speed limit is 55 miles an hour, and I understand that, but I'm choosing to go 60. So many of us might anecdotally know people who are hiring independent contractors, but doesn't mean that they're actually following the letter of the law. Uh, 
when they're hiring them as farm crew. Now, in terms of the work crews, um, from what I understand from Rachel, that's like a whole hornet's nest of different laws. Um, and we've, we've never hired people on as work crews here on our farm. And the reason isn't necessarily because the law is complicated. The reason for us is that we've understood that generally with those work crews, there'll be one person who is kind of the head of the work crew, who's responsible for everybody else and the money for the task being done, whether that's, you know, uh, hand weeding or strawberry picking or what have you, um, the money for the work that's done usually goes to that crew leader or sort of crew boss. And then that person then distributes it among the rest of the work crew. And as farm owners and folks who are really uh, very uh, passionate about living wages, we don't really feel comfortable with that setup because we have no guarantee of knowing that everyone in the work crew is actually being paid what we think they should be paid. They're only being paid what the crew leader would be paying them from that pot of money they're given from the farm. So we have not worked with work crews for that reason, because we just can't guarantee that everyone who's doing the work is getting paid the same and being paid fairly. So from a practical standpoint, Cassie, how are you guys managing when you have a, a surge in need for help on the farm? I know that was a place on my farm where we would turn to some independent contractor labor was when we were looking for, you know, we had an acre that had gone to weeds and it needed to get cleaned up. Yep. We'd say, okay, we need, you know, let's get let's get 10 people in here for a day and get this job done where I couldn't do that with the crew that I had on hand because there was already enough stuff to do, which is why we were behind on the weeding in the first place. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we, we definitely find ourselves in that situation sometimes where we say to ourselves, wow, wouldn't that be really nice if we could call in a crew for a day? Um, and what we end up typically using in our farm, this is going to, I don't want to fast forward us into a different subject if you don't want to go there, but we have a worker share or what we call a dirty hand share program now on the farm. Uh, that's primarily, um, people who are coming and doing work on the farm and in exchange, they're going home with food. And we typically use those folks to be, uh, staying on top of that hand weeding or those kind of menial tasks that our main crew, you know, isn't, necessarily the focus of what we're doing, you know, get the plants in, get them out, get them out into the world, right? Those little hand weeding or <laughs> moments sometimes lose you, you know, oh crap, we planted parsnips and we need to get in there and hand thin. We use our worker shares for that to help us uh, stay on top of everything. Um, and then sometimes we'll kind of email out to our membership. If we really get stuck, we'll try to do like a Saturday work day where we'll email out to all of our CSA members and say, Hey, we really need help on this, you know, XYZ task. Come on out to the farm and help us out. So that's how we've managed to get around not needing to use the work crews. But it's not to say that we haven't been extremely tempted <laughs> to, to do so uh, in the past. Well, and I guess, Rachel, that would be another question for you now. Here, here, Cassie has people coming and working on her farm who aren't necessarily, I mean, they're not coming in as employees, but they're clearly doing work and they're receiving something in exchange for being there. They're going home with vegetables. Yeah. Absolutely. And it is, like most areas of employment law, complicated. This is, this is one, of, one of those things. And, you know, as an attorney, it's my job to say, okay, these are the rules. These are the rules. It is the farmer's job to figure out what good risk management means 
to them. Um, and if we're looking at what the rules are, uh, the harsh reality is that there isn't really an opportunity to work on a for-profit farm without either being an employee or an independent contractor. Those are our two basic uh, options. And if we exercise control and tell that person what to do, they're an employee. Now, we all know farms who use volunteers and who offer uh, folks the opportunity to, uh, to receive uh, food and product in return for their labor. Um, and, and, and we call them volunteers. But the problem with that is the, that the law doesn't recognize volunteers for a for-profit um, operation. And, you know, the intent behind that is good. It is to prevent um, exploitation uh, in periods of, of uh, high unemployment. Um, you know, businesses could simply say, well, all right, we're going to take volunteers now. We're not going to hire anyone. We're just going to have volunteers. Uh, and you can see how that would be bad for the economy as a whole and um, reduce the, 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 the power that workers have over their, their situation and their options. So the law kind of takes this, this blanket, universal, you know, you can't have volunteers for a for-profit operation. Um, and especially when they are being provided some compensation for their, their labors, they look more and more like employees. So that's a risk. It's a risk that each farm has to think about and, 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 and reckon with. Um, and it's it's also good to note that the enforcement of the of the laws can vary depending on the states, depending on the political climate at the time, and and other factors. So some state departments of labor, who are often the ones enforcing these laws, although it can be federal as well, um, the states have said, okay, you know, we understand that this is a thing that happens, and we are willing to entertain the possible idea that maybe this isn't exploitation. They're not saying it's okay. They're not saying go right ahead. They're just saying, hmm, we understand. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's not the end of the world sometimes when folks do, uh, do use volunteers in their for-profit operation. But if you manage your risk really conservatively and you want to cover all of your bases, it's not a risk that you would take. So... Rachel taught me a term a couple of years ago called measured risk. And I really like this term as a decision-making tool as a farm owner. And we now understand the law. And if I was a true, you know, just straight to the letter of the law, I would have to get rid of this program on my farm from what I understand now. Someone is coming out to my for-profit entity. They are working for with the expectation that they will go home with food. So they're doing labor in exchange for something. And I now know that that's not necessarily following the letter of the law. So why might I still do this program? There's a couple of reasons. One, the biggest part is that when we talk about local family farm agriculture, and we use names, a lot of us call our farms community farms, we really mean that. We mean that we're feeding the community. And we also believe in bringing the community to our farm. And as long as I have people calling me saying, I want to volunteer on your farm, if they're calling me and saying they want to do that, outside of the fact that there may be rules that say technically uh, they can't do that, if they're calling me saying they want to do it, I'd like to bring them here. And most of the people who do it would probably do it 
without the food. They just want to be on a farm. They want to learn skills for their own garden or they're in an office all day and they cannot wait to get outside and get their hands dirty and make their back hurt at the end of the day and really feel like they've done something. And we believe in that part of bringing community into the farm. Uh, I've talked about the labor reasons that we still do it. It keeps my regular main farm crew focused on the more core parts of what needs to be happening on our farm, but it provides us this extra labor to help us uh, not get lost literally in a field of weeds by the end of the season. Um, so that's some of the reasons why we want to still keep folks he coming here, but there's that point of measured risk. So when we have folks come here, we've definitely changed how we do it and how we have them here um, over the years. We're much more aware of what the laws are and making sure to minimize risk as much as we can. So how do I do that? The first way that I do it is we make sure that our volunteers know that they are volunteering. They sign a piece of paper that says, I understand that I am volunteering. I am not an employee. I am volunteering at your farm. They read through this volunteer agreement and they sign it. Now, Rachel would probably be the first one to tell you that if someone actually took us to court, that piece of paper might not stand up. But at least for me, the employer and the volunteer, we know that we're agreeing that this is okay and mutually making us both happy. So that's one thing that we do. Um, so again, I don't feel like I'm exploiting anybody if they know what the work's going to be and they've signed on to do it voluntarily. The second thing that I do is, or we do, is we make sure that the value of the food that goes home with that worker share or dirty hand share, whatever you want to call it, is greater than minimum wage. Because say someone wanted to challenge us on this and say, hey, wait a second, these people are actually employees. They're coming to you, they're working in, with the expectation of getting something in return. So how are they not an employee? And I could at least say, all right, you have an argument there, but the value of the food that they're getting is greater than minimum wage. So you, you, nobody can come at me and say, again, that I'm exploiting them because the value of what they're receiving is greater than minimum wage. Now, the big key, the biggest part that um, a couple years ago we had to change things up a little when, I was, when we were thinking about risk is that I, I, I came to understand that my worker shares were not covered by workers' compensation. And I realized that if I wanted to keep, or we wanted to keep this program going, we really needed to make sure that if somebody got hurt on our farm, that we could protect them the same way that we protect uh, someone who uh, works on our farm, farm day in, day out as part of our farm crew. And so I actually uh, asked around other farmers who uh, have worker share programs, what were they doing? How are they protecting those workers? And I ended up finding a farmer who said, oh, well, Mine are covered by workers' comp through our insurance company. So I asked some more questions and realized that if I switched insurance companies and talked to my insurance agent, they were actually willing to put all of our worker shares on our policy to be covered by workers' comp, even though they aren't receiving a W-2. So once I was able to figure that situation out, in my mind, most of my risk was managed. You know, uh, my the people who come here as volunteers are getting paid or receiving uh, something that's greater than or equal to minimum wage. And if something happens to them on the farm, I can cover them uh, through my workers' compensation policy. And so in terms of risk, 
really the risk I'm running is that some outside entity comes to me and says, hey, I don't like that you're doing this program. And the state might do that. The federal government might do that. Uh, But at this point, uh, kind of like Rachel said, it seems like nobody's really interested in going after small farmers in that way currently. And if that legal environment changes, we would certainly reconsider our program and look at risk again. But as it stands now, we feel like we kind of have our bases covered. Everybody's being treated fairly and everybody is protected if they get hurt. And so we still choose to offer the program. That's a good spot just to really quickly touch on workers' compensation. And when is that required, Rachel? Right. So workers' compensation programs are all state-run. There is not a federal workers' compensation program, um, well, for the for the concerns of farmers um, who will be listening. And uh, each state has different rules on when workers' compensation is required or not. Most states, uh, the majority, have different rules for agriculture as they do for non-agriculture. So, uh, so if folks are paying attention to what their you know friend who runs a restaurant or their you know buddy who has a consulting business is doing, that's not necessarily going to be relevant to a farm. Um, they follow different rules. So the the, the rules vary widely. Um, one state requires that you get workers' compensation as soon as your payroll is 2500 or more. Now, the state of Wisconsin is uh, very permissive in letting um, farmers go without workers' compensation. You need uh, six or more employees on, you know, 20, uh, it's a long, it's a long drawn out rule. Um, and um, here's a time where I can interject to say, folks can go to farmcommons.org and check out our employment law resources, and they can find the specifics for several Midwestern states on workers' compensation by watching our state-specific um, employment law webinars. So that's one way they can get um, an idea for their state specifically. Another one is certainly to call regulators. And and that's something people don't, they don't always want to do. If you call up the workers' compensation division and say, hey, do I need workers' comp? There's a lot of hesitancy to do that. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know what kind of notes they're they're taking or who's going to show up on your farm tomorrow if you call. But, uh, you know, they are, since they are often the the enforcement folks, Uh, They really do understand the law. You can also just go to an attorney. Attorneys are are well-versed in this, but sometimes that can be a challenge for a farm. Again, because farms follow different rules in many areas of employment law, your classic employment law attorney sometimes doesn't know those rules, doesn't know them in detail and and know the subtleties. So it can can be a challenge to get good answers on what each um, farmers in each state have to do regarding workers' comp. So if I call a state regulator and, uh, you know, say I'm, I'm listening to the show on the East or the West coast, so I don't have the advantage of just going to your guidance on this. Mm -hmm. And I, and they, they tell me something, how do I make sure they're telling me the right thing? I mean, I've, I've been dealing with insurance Mm -hmm. a lot lately, uh, you know, just at a personal level. And I know every time I call, there's this recording that says, well, basically anything we tell you doesn't really count. It (laughs) has to come out of the 600 page policy document that we sent to you. Um, you know, so you can get your questions answered, but they're not always, they're not, they don't guarantee that they're accurate. How do I, how do I protect myself against that as a, as somebody who's interfacing with regulators? 
Great, great question. So regulators interpret, apply, um, enforce, but they don't write the rules. And ultimately, the court is the one that interprets any rules and regulations as to what they truly mean. Um, So the regulators can't do that. Uh, and, And, you know, that's the way the system is designed to work. But it's pretty lame for for farmers and other business owners who need an answer. There's a couple of things you can do. You can certainly ask for the source. I do that when I'm speaking with regulators. I say, well, point me to where um, that rule is. Point me to that interpretation of the rule. They might give you a statute. They might give you a regulation or a policy document or something like that. So asking for the source is a good initial step. Sometimes that's a dead end, too, because you look at the source and you think, oh, my God, this is a jumble of words. It doesn't make any sense. And um, I'm looking at 10 hours of work just to understand, excuse me, just to understand um, this language that that's sometimes the case. Um, You know, workers comp statutes themselves and other regulations can be can be really dense. So this is honestly why attorneys exist. <laughs> when you plunk down your your hundred or two hundred dollars an hour, you get an answer, uh, and an answer that's based on uh, a lot of experience and and knowledge. Now farmers don't don't have that kind of money. You know, it's 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 often not in the budget to plunk down a lot of cash for for some answers um, on what they need to do. Uh, but it's a uh, it's a cost versus money. Um, I'm sorry, a cost versus time analysis. How much is your time worth? Can you find an attorney you trust who can give you an answer in a short amount of time and keep your bills low? Um, and uh, it, that's the vacuum that Farm Commons exists to, to try and fill. We want to see other options. We want to see farmers have more access to actionable um, understandable legal resources. Uh, and although we're we're based out of the Midwest and are beginning our work here, we are definitely expanding um, to both of the coasts and uh, developing state-specific materials uh, nationwide. But, you know, it's slow going. We're, we're grant funded. And so we have to, uh, we're constantly competing for, for resources to be able to develop this information. Great. So having discussed that workers' comp, um, I'd like to ask Cassie, do you guys have interns or apprentices on your farm or is everybody that that works for you basically just a classic employee? Everyone who works for us is a classic employee. Okay. We did have an intern at the very beginning <laughs> of our farm and uh that's one of those examples of now I understand the law and go, "Ooh, okay. We didn't really uh handle that." appropriately. Uh, <laughs> but I think the statute of limitations hopefully has passed on that. That was over a decade ago. <laughs> so uh, everybody is a classic employee on our farm now. And so Rachel, I guess I'd have to ask you then, how do interns and apprentices fall into this? I mean, this is a very common model in the sustainable and organic and local agriculture movement to to bring people onto the farm and, and say that we're teaching you how to farm and so you can work 60 hours a week and I'll give you a $400 a month stipend. I know we did that. It sounds like Cassie did that or maybe you guys weren't as gratuitous as that. But, you know, a lot of people start there and a lot of people are doing it 10, 20 years later too. So I'm curious how that interfaces with the law. Absolutely. And I myself started there. Uh, I was a farm intern. I loved my experience. I learned a lot. It was, it was terrific. Um, Don't regret a a minute of it, but the law is the law. And under the law, 
almost all interns and apprentices are actually employees and they, under the law, need to be treated just like any other employee. And so then the dominoes start falling. When we say just like any other employee, we mean workers' compensation, minimum wage, um, unemployment insurance, all of those things um, might apply. Now, I did say almost all, and that's because uh, there is some allowance for um, an intern to be classified as basically a volunteer, as other than a, uh, an, an employee. Now, if folks want to uh, want to look at the federal guidance on that, on when it, when your intern is not an employee, they can um, search for Backsheet 71. Or, of course, you can go to farmcommons.org and watch my long tutorial <laughs> on this area <laughs> of law. But let me summarize Fact Sheet 71 for you. It lays out six criteria that your position is going to have to meet uh, to, to be non-employment. Now, the worst one on there, the real killer, which I'm going to bring up right away, is that the intern can't benefit your operation. You can't be any more productive for having that intern as when you do not have that intern, they can't accomplish the real work of your organ of your of your of your business, you know, and help you make more money. And of course, at that point, it's like, well, why would we have them anyways? And and that's the point. That's the point. They're supposed to be so unlike a real employee that you don't have to follow um, employment laws for them. So basically, they trail you around the farm, watch what you're doing, and bug the heck out of you as they ask all their questions and you patiently answer them and, you know, steward them in the nuances of, of organic and sustainable agriculture. If you've got that, then you might have an intern. Okay. That, that seems like a real, well, that would pretty <laughs> much leave most internship programs that I know about on farms dead in the water right there. It, it does. And that is where we, uh, two things to say, risk management. Cassie's gone through an analysis for her own farm. What is appropriate risk management? What are the risks that are the most likely to materialize? And that would be the most um, tragic if they did materialize. And she's analyzed that for her Dirty Hands Share program um, and came to a decision that works for her. And everyone's going to have to do that with, uh, with intern programs. Um, so, so that's the first point. The second point is... Uh, in some states, minimum wage is not required for those who perform agricultural labor. Um, and that's an important point. I would, uh, I would estimate about half of the states um, have a pretty big exception for farms and say that they, they don't have to require or don't have to pay the minimum wage. So that's a, that's a benefit for those farms that fall under those, um, those rules and are small enough that they don't need to pay minimum wage we can at least cross that risk off the list. We still have to ask ourselves about workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, et cetera, but we can at least cut that one out. Now, even when folks are obligated to pay at least the minimum wage to their interns, again, most states will allow you to provide some of that compensation in the form of food and lodging. And that's what a lot of farms are doing already. They, uh, they provide a CSA share or, you know, unlimited access to um, the products of the farm plus um, some, some lodging. The rules, again, are of course complicated in exactly how you can value that and what it, what it means when you start to provide uh, food and lodging in terms of taxes and a whole cascade of other laws that come to play. Um, 
but it 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 is a way that 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 folks stay within the law and still provide what we think of as a classic internship opportunity. Great. I actually think that's really helpful in in thinking about that. Now, something that you've talked about a couple of times is you know, this idea of measured risk and and maybe I should have dived in on this earlier, but you know, risk is kind of a I always think of it as being a function of two things, right? It's a function of likelihood and severity of the outcome. Right. Right. So, I mean, if something's really likely to happen, but there's not likely to be much of a consequence for it, I might go ahead and do it. Jaywalking on State Street in Madison. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So but there are other things where it's not very likely to happen getting in a car accident. um, But the the severity of the consequence is pretty high. So every time I get in my car, I do put on my seatbelt. Right. I've only been in two accidents in my whole life. So, you know. I, I guess there's I always think about that, right? So when we're talking about the 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 risk, the man doing this management of a measured risk, um, what are the consequences if you get afoul of these labor laws? Oh, they can be serious. They they definitely can be. Um now let's take the example of uh, a farm that's offering um, an internship opportunity, and they consider that internship to not be employment. So they are not treating this individual as an employee. So not paying, not doing the payroll taxes, not not covering them with with workers' comp, not giving them the unemployment insurance. Exactly. We have a we have a so many laws that apply to employees. And if we're not following those, then every single one of those laws could be enforced against that farm um, independently. Uh, they'll be, um, they could be responsible for back wages if they were not paying the equivalent of minimum wage. Um, even if they were paying it, but they weren't um, meeting their payroll tax obligations. Now there's going to be uh, back payroll tax obligations and perhaps a penalty for that. If the person was injured and workers' compensation wasn't provided as it should have been, that can be a very serious uh, problem. The farm could be responsible for the costs, all the costs of that injury, and again, penalties uh, for for having done that. If the if the farm is is uh, is is exceptionally um, derelict in their duty regarding workers' compensation. It can sometimes be a felony not to uh, not to provide that, um, and that's because it, you know the risks of injury are are so devastating, and and farms are hazardous places. So so that's that's a big one. Um, but you know we can keep going down the line. We have the unemployment insurance uh, tax that uh, that the states have, and 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 other things, and. Again, I'm going to emphasize that not all of these rules will apply to all farms because farms often have big exceptions from agri- from from employment law. But folks need to know whether they are under that exception or whether they are expected to provide it. One thing, too, as we're talking about measured risks is I like to think of it as the law is setting the minimum of what we have to do. And one of the things that if I can spread my spread my word in terms of how we look at this is it shouldn't always be about meeting the minimum. So just because there's a minimum doesn't mean that's the only place you should be. So, so let me give an example with workers' compensation because we've been talking about that. So we as a farm at Crossroads Community Farm have definitely met the threshold where we are required to offer workers' compensation on our farm. And so we certainly do that. But we actually began to offer workers' comp before we were legally required to. 
So again, the law is just the minimum. And it was, you know, a certain threshold, six employees for a certain amount of number of days, some really very complicated rubric if you're in Wisconsin. But bottom line is before we reached that point, we said, we need to do this because when I was looking at risk management, um, I realized that the law wasn't really protecting us there. So we had a couple of employees, two different uh, sort of injuries that happened on our farm, uh, two different employees. Luckily, none of them were severe. But in both cases, I, I sort of went down this road of trying to figure out how to make sure that we as the farm weren't at risk. And uh, the minimum of the law wasn't helping me there. So basically, with our first employee, we didn't have to offer workers' compensation, so we didn't. And our worker got hurt. He cut himself, and it was it was fairly severe. We're not not super severe, but he, he cut a tendon in his finger. But he did it at lunchtime with a farm knife, with his own, you know, eating an apple, and he cut himself. And so it was this really weird gray area where he wasn't really doing something for the farm, but he was using a farm knife that happened to be new. So it was sharper than he was anticipating, which is kind of why he ended up cutting himself. And luckily, you know, he was a really chill guy. And this was our, you know, kind of first year with an employee and we were really young and we sort of talked through it all and he got it taken care of. And it wasn't the farm, the farm did not have to take responsibility for it, for his care. And after that happened, we went, whoa, wow, talk about the risk that, you know, we have exposed ourselves to. So at that point, we didn't even have general liability insurance as a farm that year. <laughs> and so I realized, you know, here I am just educating myself as we go. Hey, honey, I think we really ought to do this. Let's talk about this. So anyway, um, got ourselves some insurance. And I talked very what I thought was very clearly with the insurance agent and said, okay, so what happens if one of my employees gets hurt on the farm with this whole general liability, commercial liability, umbrella, all these terms they throw at you, what does this really mean if somebody gets hurt on my farm? And her response was, oh, well, you have this $5,000 uh, medical clause. So if something happens to your employee, you've got this $5,000 uh, to take care of them. And then if that doesn't work, then you have this you know, general liability umbrella. So I'm like, great. So I think to myself, kind of like, all right, we got this $5,000 for bills, should we need them? And then this like, you know, magical, mythical umbrella that protects me from everything is sort of how I understood it. Right. So then we fast forward a couple of years, we have another employee, she gets hurt. She hurts her back. She's taking a crate. She's putting it up on the truck. She's at farmer's market and she boom, just like right there, you know, she pulls something. We all see it happen. You can see that instantaneous injury. And so uh, I was so proud of myself because I was able to say, Hey, you know, I can take care of you. Here's what we're going to do. You know, we have this medical liability thing. You go to the doctor, you get the care you need. We're going to pay for the bills. And we did that. And so I still thought everything was okay. Um, you know, we paid out of that medical liability clause. So good to go. Happy rainbow umbrella was doing its job. But then we fast forward a couple more years and I'm getting more savvy. And so, you know, each year where that insurance agent comes to your house and they rattle off what you have on your policy, um, I was getting better at asking more specific questions. And so I ask her, okay, so I had, you know, an employee who hurt their back. This all worked um, because we were under the $5,000. She was fine. She went to the chiropractor a few times. We were able to take care of it. What would have happened? If $5,000 wasn't enough, what is this umbrella that you speak of? <laughs> and basically what I learned at that point was that 
if any bill had gone over $5,000, our employee, again, we didn't have workers' compensation at this point because we weren't legally required to offer it, so I wasn't, she would have had to sue us to get that money that existed in the magical umbrella. And so that was a real pivotal turning point for me as a business owner when I began to understand that because instantly I said, wait a second. And what about when my employees are driving a truck and they get in a car accident? Because you're going to go over $5,000 really quick if you had some sort of serious car accident or even not that serious of a car accident, but somebody's in the hospital, you're over that threshold in a heartbeat. And she said, well, then they'd have to sue you to get any more money. So I thought, wow, first of all, that sounds like a headache as me, an owner. And second of all, just morally, people are working and using their bodies to help me run and my husband run a business that's in the end for us. And I didn't feel morally right about that at all, that I was putting my employees out to have such a level of risk that if they were to get hurt, they'd have to sue us to actually get the help, the medical help they needed. So at that point, we decided to pay for workers' compensation, even though we weren't legally required to. So again, you want to understand what, you know, just because there's a law there that says you have to do this when you cross a certain threshold, you still want to understand, well, what does it mean before I cross this threshold? It doesn't magically mean that then everybody's still protected. It means that you are putting yourself and your farm under a whole bunch of risk. But I didn't understand any of that until, you know, years had kind of passed forward and I'd been able to ask more subtle questions. So you want to understand what the laws are. And you also want to understand if you're if you haven't met the threshold, what risks are you opening yourself up to still when it comes to workers comp? I, I, I'm hoping that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. And I think it's a. It's something that I think is really important to think about as, as especially because most of us are motivated by more than just profit in this business, you know, and this is something that, that especially those of us on the left, we fought for, for a long time to get these kinds of protections for, for workers. And it makes sense that we'd want to extend them in our situation. That's exactly what Cassie is doing with minimum wage and overtime. Which is what we're going to talk about as soon as we get back from getting a word from our sponsors. Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depends absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. Produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients that I could to make my own potting soil and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found that what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switch to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options delivered at a time that works best for you. Plus, their shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that gets shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Feed the soil. VermontCompost.com. 
This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by FarmFan. Most farmer's market customers only visit the market two or three times per season, and there are plenty who make it less often. Market dates simply get forgotten in the wash of soccer games, brunch dates, commuting, and other commitments that keep would-be market customers from becoming regular market shoppers, not to mention the challenges to your customers of knowing when market season begins and ends or keeping them on schedule for irregular winter markets. FarmFan lets you send a text message reminder to all of your customers, taking the detect fork out of the equation. Plus, you can let customers know what you'll have at market that day and even offer your farm fans special deals to increase the number of market customers who come specifically to see and buy from you. Unlike emails and social media, text messages are always on. 98% of text messages actually get read compared to 25% of emails and as little as 4% for some social media channels. Who doesn't check their phone when it buzzes? Visit the show notes page for this episode or the sponsor page at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash sponsors for 25% off your 6 or 12 month subscription to FarmFan. Turn your well-meaning occasional shoppers into regulars and create a following. farmfanapp.com. And we're back with Rachel Armstrong and Cassie Nolderwees uh talking about employment law and and of course one of the things with employment law is is what do you have to pay people? So Cassie, can you tell us how you handle that on your farm? Sure. Well, in the state of Wisconsin, it's pretty straightforward. You pretty much have to offer minimum wage. Uh, Rachel, are there any quick exceptions to that? Oh, about half of the states have an exception for farms that are on the smaller side. Okay. But Wisconsin's not one of those. So you have to offer a minimum wage. And on our farm, um, we have taken again that concept of always trying to pay above the amount. and the reason for that might be because I was actually Crossroads' first employee, technically. <laughs> um, my husband and I started working together in 2007, but we were still dating at the time prior to, you know, we'd started dating prior to me working there. And so we thought, well, you know, just so things don't get messy or like, you know, in case we break up or whatever, let's just make sure I'm a paid employee. And uh, I'd worked on some other farms before. And at that time, minimum wage in Wisconsin was $6.55. So I uh, proposed to my then husband to be uh, in the future, how about we pay me $7.50 an hour? (laughs) And he agreed. Uh, So I was the first employee and started the trend that we've always paid more than minimum wage. And there's a couple of reasons that we've done that. Uh, first of all, it just helps attract better candidates. Not every farm is in the position to do that. And certainly when most of us get started, that's really hard to do. But the more that you can offer even just a little bit over what that minimum is, it just uh, increases your candidate pool uh, for people to work at your farm. Uh, it also, you know, again, on that moral level for us, we didn't come into farming purely as a business venture. We came into it as, as a full lifestyle, as a way of, you know, we want to be local organic family farmers and we want to try to kind of upset the general paradigm. And so we're not always going to do something at the minimum. And so we believe that hard work is, uh, farm work is, uh, hard work, it's important work, and it deserves really good pay. And I don't think anybody doing farm work really gets paid as much as they should, but to the extent that we can offer more, we do. And that's always what I say to other farmers, just offer more as you're able, if you can. And as a farm, we've been striving towards a living wage, and this is year 12. So um, it's the first year that we've been able to do that. And so Madison's living wage, um, and a living wage, if you're not familiar, is kind of like 
uh, the amount someone should be paid so that um, they don't need any public assistance. And that is $12.83 an hour. So um, in each town or county or area, will ha- um, you can look up on Line, they'll have a different sort of wage. But since most of our employees are coming from the Madison area, we chose that wage. It's $12.83 an hour. And so this year, um, that is the start. Everybody makes at least $12.83 an hour. Um, and we did that without raising our CSA shares for our boxes. So um, it's just something that we felt very strongly about. Wow. Congratulations. That's really awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, hopefully I did my budgeting right. <laughs> we get to the end yeah. of the season. We're okay. <laughs> so what, what about overtime? How are you guys handling that? Well, um, so overtime in Wisconsin, as far as I know, <laughs> is it's pretty straightforward. We don't have to offer it in agriculture. So we're completely exempt from doing this. Uh, but as a farm, we decided that we were still going to offer it. But it's really kind of cool since there is no law, like since we're not required to do it, that means that Mike and I, we can just make up how we want overtime to work on our farm. You know, it ends up almost being a program on our farm because it's not a law that we're following. So what we do is um, we pay time and a half for hours over worked over 80 in the two week period. So you could work 50 hours one week and 30 the next, and I'm not going to pay overtime for the 50. Um, And that gives us some flexibility with weather, especially in the springtime. Like right now, we're just kind of like waiting and waiting and waiting for the ground to dry. And then boom, we're going to go crazy, right? So um, that, but the reason we did this was uh, it's a tool to recruit labor. So again, when you're trying to get a good uh, candidate base and great people to work on your farm, um, most farms don't offer this. And so a lot of people are like, oh, wow. Um, And what it really does is it's respecting workers' life outside of work. So before I was a farm owner, I was a farm employee and I just hated it when, you know, I was told like, yeah, we're going to work nine to five today. And consistently I would work till six or six 15 or five 15. You know, it was sort of, it was very frustrating as an employee, especially when you don't understand the full scope of what the owners are going through. You're just looking at this, like you told me nine to five and you keep pushing me over And you're still paying me for that time, but you're not respecting that maybe I had dinner plans or maybe I had something else I was going to do. So um, we, you know, offer this as a a way of respect. And the other reason we do it as owners, we want to do it because it is a good gauge for when we need more labor. So we don't ever want to pay overtime and we rarely pay it. Maybe we'll pay one to two hours on an employee's time. And it's kind of like a, a, a breaks for us. You know, if we all of a sudden a bunch of people were having to put over 80 hours in two weeks, that tells us you need more help. You need to hire somebody else. And it's a heck of a lot cheaper to hire a new employee than be paying everybody that you already have time and a half. And it keeps everybody happier over the course of the season because you're not overworking anybody. So, Rachel, could you comment on the overtime thing uh, from a from a legal perspective? I mean, so here in Wisconsin, it isn't required. How common is overtime in the ag sector? So under federal law, which applies to every state, um, agricultural labor does not get time and a half for hours worked over 40. So pretty big fat exemption. Most states um, also follow that exemption and do not require uh, time and a half for hours over um, 40. 
What counts as agricultural labor? Is, is that include selling at a farmer's market or driving a truck? Great question. And that's a good thing to keep in mind for, for everything that I have been saying during, during this podcast. When I say, well, in some states, minimum wage is not required for agricultural labor. There is a definition for agricultural labor. Um, and it's, it's not anything that the farm does. It's a, it's a careful definition. Um, for the purposes of overtime, though, the definition is quite broad. So most things that a farm would be doing um, would, would be exempt from overtime. So selling at a farmer's market, um, doing some cooperative distribution, um, you know, hosting events and, and festivals and things like that. Um, but it's important to note the definition for the purposes of minimum wage is a little bit more narrow. So if folks are not paying the minimum wage that would be required for non-farm businesses, that's, um, that can be pretty narrow. And even if you start selling at the farmer's market or hosting events and festivals, uh, th that exception wouldn't apply anymore. And you need, to tr you need to provide minimum wages any other normal non-farm business would. And are, are those exceptions for minimum wage, are those state specific or is that federal rules? We are talking about a complex intersection between state and and federal rules. So so here's an issue where um, folks would need more information and where Farm Commons is busy trying to provide that. Folks in the Midwestern states can um, can check out our our tutorials that help combine um, state and federal laws. So if I'm looking at a, at a state law and a federal law, how do I know which one applies? Whichever one is most onerous. That's the one that applies. Nice. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So on the subject of compensation, then, um, I mean, we've got the, we've got the ACA or Obamacare, um, which covers the whole health insurance thing. I don't think that kicks in for the level of employees that probably most of my listeners have. Is that right, Rachel? Uh, that is true. You would need to have 50 or more employees before you're obligated to provide health insurance. Okay. Now, Cassie, you mentioned kind of going above and beyond in your world, uh, especially when it comes to compensation. Do you guys offer health insurance on your farm? We don't. And I, I wish that we could. We discuss it each year. Uh, we think that it, it would be a great thing to show your workers that you really care about their health. Uh, it certainly uh, is a benefit that re would recruit workers to come to the farm. But for us, uh, when ACA passed or Obamacare passed, it did not make it easier for us to offer to our employees. We were very hopeful. Um, as, as many farms know, health insurance is just this huge thorn in your side, and it really did not make it easier to offer to our employees. And so one of the options we could have, the way the, the law works now, is we could offer it as a cash stipend. We could say, hey, we're going to give you uh, $100 a month or $200 a month towards health insurance, but it would still be taxable income. And so we decided basically that there's, there's a pot of money that we have that, you know, is dedicated towards paying for labor on our farm. And it's kind of like how you decide to dress it up. We could say, yeah, we're going to give you this health insurance, but then it would have to come out of their hourly wage, essentially. So we decided to put that money into higher wages uh, and a gear stipend uh, instead of health insurance. So um, at the, that's just sort of how we decided to do it. But this would certainly be a great area for folks if you wanted to go above and beyond. This is certainly would be a wonderful recruitment, recruitment tool for good farm workers. You said a gear stipend. Now, I assume that that's still 
fits into something that's taxable, right? Yeah. Okay. So taxes then. Rachel, do you want to talk a little bit about taxes on wages? That sounds great. Yes. So payroll taxes are um, an unfortunate reality for for businesses of all types, um, and farms aren't much different uh, in this area. Um, the moment you hire somebody, um, well, okay, technically federal payroll taxes owed when you provide one person $150 in wages or more, or your total payroll is $2,500 um, or more. So basically, right away, you've got to start um, contributing to federal payroll taxes. Now, the, the, the basics are the Social Security and Medicare taxes, which some folks uh, call them by the acronym FICA. These are both employee and employer taxes. So uh, one percentage is withheld from the employee's wages and then given to the federal government. And uh, the other, the employer pays that um, for the privilege of having that worker. Um, and employers are not allowed to, to deduct um, their portion from the employee's wages. So it's 7.65% um, for, for both folks. And so, you know, that, that can add up pretty quickly. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, um, it's a heavy responsibility for having um, employees. States also have um, income taxes, and uh, and they have different rates and different thresholds at which you need to start withholding. Um, and some states will allow farms to um, to not withhold um, their income tax obligations um, for for folks, but that's a state specific rule. Some do, some don't. So a great uh, publication for farmers trying to figure this out. Definitely checking out Rachel's website at step one. Um, but there's an IRS publication 51, circular A. It's called the Agricultural Employers Tax Guide. It will spell out all this stuff for you if you are wanting to learn how to do it yourself. Um, I did taxes on our farm and all payroll and everything by myself until this year. And uh, But you can also use online payroll services. And one of the things I'm discovering with the online payroll service is they kind of do all this stuff for you. So if you don't want to dive into IRS publication 51 circular A and learn all those rules, in some ways you almost don't have to, if you decide to uh, outsource to a payroll service, they're going to keep you on task for just about everything that you're going to need to do for your federal and state taxes that apply to wages paid out to your employees. So Cassie, how did, I mean, up until this year, how are you handling it? I, I, you know, that publication was kind of like a <laughs> uh, my my main source of of learning the laws, and I learned how to set up payroll through my QuickBooks, and I was, you know, just doing it myself. Uh, but the end of the year tax filings and requirements and all the different forms were starting to get a little overwhelming, especially as we crossed into you know having twelve and thirteen different people on the payroll. So uh, I've decided that I really want to be in the field more, and I don't want to be running payroll. I'd rather be driving a tractor. So um, this year, I made the decision to outsource it. I know that when we decided to outsource our payroll, I. Uh, it made a huge difference. It was so much easier. And just a, it wasn't just a matter of, of simple time savings. It was a huge mental burden yes. that, that went away. Um, and the other really great thing they did, um, and I don't know if all payroll tax services do this, but we worked with ADP. They would actually um, 
instead of instead of me having to keep track of how much I was going to owe on on the taxes that maybe I was paying once a month or once a quarter, mm-hmm. they actually just took it out at every payroll. So I didn't have this big payable that came up once every three months. You know, and that was also nice not to have to to deal with that from a cash flow perspective. Yes, I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> not having to have these big, you know, you hit July and go, oh gosh, my 943s do. And doing all this paperwork and trying to figure it all out, I'm I'm very much looking forward to uh, someone doing it for me and the money just having come out little bits and little bits at a time, so it's not some big check that I I forgot about that I suddenly owe. So I think that would be really nice. <laughs> so now the other the other thing that I think oftentimes comes up when we're talking about employees uh, is this idea of an employee manual. You know, this, the, all of the, this sort of addresses all of the other issues around being an employee. You know, can you smoke? What time do you have to be at work? All of that kind of stuff. Rachel, what can you, no, Cassie, what can you tell us about, about your employee manual? I assume you have one. We just wrote one <laughs> uh, this season. I just finished it for the first time. We'd never had one cause we sort of thought, oh, this isn't necessary, but, um, the more I talked to Rachel and other farmers, it kind of seemed like, oh, this might be a good tool. It, it might make my life easier because I might be able to establish, you know, some of the things that are part of the on-the-job training. There are some things that that we can have people learn about before they're even starting. So, and it also provides us... Um, a roadmap for situations outside of field training. So some of those things you just, you're so focused on, here's how you transplant a broccoli start that you don't necessarily talk about appropriate management of the lunch area, for example. Uh, So the manual kind of gives us a chance to put things into print that sometimes in the, you know, go, go, go mentality of the field season, we forget to talk to people about. We also realized it'd be really useful because we don't have sort of an employee orientation. I'm assuming a lot of other farms are like this. We sort of pull people on as we need them. We have, we hire a crew and, but they kind of come on one by one by one as the work increases and the ground dries out and the growing season gets going. And so there's no real quick, convenient, easy way for everybody to sit down at the start and teach them all this stuff. So we thought, oh, well, if we put this in print and have a manual, which we did this year, I actually have emailed it out to all of the people that have been hired and said, please read this and sign this before your first day. So I already know, like they've, they know that they, you know, for example, can't smoke pot at the farm, or this is what we want to have happen. If you're feeling sick, if you have a fever or any sort of situation, the last reason that I thought I shouldn't say that, not any sort of situation, the manual itself also provides a roadmap for us um, for sometimes that things that might be trickier to talk about. So for example, pot smoking is a big one where, um, you know, we've been in business for 12 years and there's been a couple people over the course of the years that you realize they're doing that. And we never had anything in print that said, don't do that at work. We never took time at the beginning of the season to say, we expect that you will be working 
you know, in a normal state, <laughs> there should be no, no pot smoking happening. We just weren't addressing it until it was a problem. And then, then it was this like awkward conversation of saying like, ah, well, the, you know, we don't want you doing this here. And sorry, we, we assumed that you figured that that wasn't something that's supposed to happen here, but clearly we're not on the same page. Right. So an employee manual can really, uh, kind of take care of those things before they become problems and provide you with the language and kind of this place to say, look, you knew this coming in, that this is not something you're allowed to do here. So it really helps deal with some of those more awkward uh, situations you might find yourself in. So we did it and hopefully uh, it it will be a good thing for this season. I'll have to let you know. <laughs> Rachel, are there any concerns with an employee manual? I mean, if, if you put one together and you leave something out or you you put something in that maybe is is not kosher with the law, however that might be, how what, are there issues there? There can be. There can be. Most folks would like to preserve their ability to let an employee go, and they want to be able to do that under uh, a range of circumstances. You know, maybe farm comes into hard times, doesn't have the money. Maybe that person is just not a fit for uh, for the operation anymore. Now, to preserve your ability to let people go, um, you would like to keep that employee what we call at will. Um, and that means you can let them go. To do that, you don't want to create any sort of employment contract with that person. An employment contract would be something like, okay, you're going to be employed here from um, the beginning of April to the end of October, and uh, here's what I'm going to pay you. There can be a risk in uh, creating a contract like that that, uh, that says you will be employed uh, because you might be limiting your ability to let them go if those circumstances change. That becomes a risk with an employee, employee manual because you're laying out, okay, well, here are the rules. You need to follow um, these rules. You need to do these things. Um, that can be inverted. It, it can look like, well, okay, if I don't do any of those things, then you'll keep employing me, Right. And that may not be the intention. So we do need to be a little bit careful when we draft employee manuals um, to not inadvertently create an employment contract um, that will that will bind us. And there are also some some sensitive issues about um, you know discrimination and and things like that that no farm really intends to do. But you can if you're not. Uh, if you're not thinking about things broadly, you might accidentally create discriminatory procedures or practices. And, um, and so we, we, we do have to take a, a close look at what we're doing. Um, and Farm Commons provides a sample employee manual on our website that folks can check out and get an idea how you can phrase things in a way that, uh, that really works for your farm and, 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 and will protect you rather than create more vulnerabilities. So one of the things that I'm interested that you just said is is about being careful not to create a contract. And I guess this is something that maybe goes a little bit broader in the area of farm law in general. But, you know, I found on my farm, it was worth sitting down with employees and writing out at the beginning of the year. You said that you could start on this date and you said that you would be available until this date. You know, because I mean, you know how it is when kids are going back to college, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I need to leave a week early, you know, because I need time to move into my my dorm or whatever. And suddenly you're left hanging for 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 help. Um, so we started 
actually spelling out a, a, a start date and an end date. And we just put on at the top of that piece of paper that, hey, this is not a contract of employment. This isn't, you know, you're not contracted to work. This, this is just an understanding of our expectations based on the idea that everything works out. Is that enough to make something into not a contract? I'm going to give you the classic attorney answer of maybe it depends. Gee, thanks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You you may have been creating a problem for yourself there because anytime we um we expect someone else to do something for us and we're you know we're expected to give them something in return. That's the premise of a contract. You do this, I do that, um and we're all in agreement here. If you tell someone okay, well, I need you to work um, these these set dates. Um, and if you don't, then there will be consequences. Uh, then they can say, uh, great, what's in it for me? What am I, what am I getting for that? Um, and if we, depending on the circumstances, a court could look at that and say, well, Chris, what you gave them was the promise of continued employment as long as they did these things. And if that wasn't your intention, if your intention wasn't to promise them continued employment so long as they, you know, did set things, you you could be in an uncomfortable situation if you if you, you know, say let them go and early and they were not happy about that. All right. So I would be remiss, you know, I've got an attorney on the phone here and and I think if I didn't ask about employees and the Food Safety Modernization Act, particularly the produce rule, because I think that's, you know, when when we're thinking about what's coming down the pike from a legal perspective, I think that's that's the big thing right now. And although it's not all about employees, almost everything in there has to be carried out by employees. So, Rachel, can you just talk a little bit about how you see the Food Safety Modernization Act and employment law and all of that kind of meshing together? Yes, that's a that's a great question. And this is going to be a really interesting um, area of law and to, to see how the Food Safety Modernization Act really develops on farms and the different techniques that farms adopt to um, to comply with the with the rule. Now, to, to step back a bit, um, if folks aren't aren't familiar with Food Safety Modernization Act and, and the, the produce rule, um, it's going to uh affect farms and parts of it have um, have already been in place as of the as of January 1st. Um, it's going to affect folks that uh, that grow and market um, products normally consumed raw. So we have a flow chart on our website if folks want some more information about whether or not this rule is going to apply to them. If it does, then the farm needs to uh, follow certain rules and 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 procedures uh, to protect the the safety of the food that they are growing. Now, how that affects employees is a lot of these things are going to be carried out by employees. So a farm is going to need some very effective training and monitoring um, systems to ensure that they are meeting their obligations to the produce rule. And more importantly, that they can prove that they're meeting those obligations. And that's a, a lot of what the law is about, is about creating a paper trail so that we can we can evidence uh, our our compliance. Um, one of the things I, I probably should have mentioned earlier, when we're talking minimum wage, overtime, those sorts of things, even if these rules um, don't uh, don't apply to a person. Uh, a farm should still keep careful time cards 
Um, and those time cards should list, okay, who works when and what did they do? Because that's the evidence you use to show that you are or are not complying with the law. So things like employee manuals, um, careful procedures, careful training, that's all going to be important to, to provide evidence that we are um, working towards meeting our obligations um, under the produce rule. You just talked about you know, making sure that employees are actually doing what they're supposed to do. And I think we've all had situations on our farm where an employee wasn't doing what they're supposed to do. I mean, I remember one time on my farm, we had this guy who basically refused to weigh the boxes of beets, you know, so we'd box up the beets and, and you'd, you'd look at what he had done and they were supposed to be 25 pound cases and they would be anywhere between 18 and 27. And we tried again and again to say, you have to do this. You have to do this. And, and finally we said, that's it. You're fired. You can't, you can't work here. And, and he actually went and applied for unemployment coverage. And we, we contested it because he hadn't been doing his job. And, and the, the judge, the administrative judge that we had said, well, it actually had to be willful neglect, not just neglect. It had to be willful neglect. And you couldn't demonstrate that. And, and I know when we talk about firing people, you know, there's a, there's a lot that goes into that kind of a decision, but I was, I was, I don't know. I was stunned by that. That really felt like, like there was no protection for me as an employee, as an employer in that situation. And I wonder if you can talk about some of the you know, here we'll end on a sour note here, the legal ramifications of if you do have to dismiss employees, what do you need to be thinking about in that situation? Right. Uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, for anyone who's who's not familiar, um, it's we we call this unemployment insurance or an unemployment tax, uh, and it's uh, state and federally run programs that uh, where employers pay into a pot of money that is then given out to folks who um, lose their jobs. Now, who gets unemployment insurance and who does not after they they lose their jobs can be a very uh, specific um, a very specific question. As you realized, there's often um, yeah, is it willful neglect? Um, other uh, other states will ask, well, okay, was this uh, was this a uh, an action that reduced your bottom line? Or was it just a personal preference? You know, what, what exactly were the, were the factors that went into the dismissal? Now, a couple of things. Why do we care about this? Why do we care about unemployment insurance? Well, first, uh, if a farm has to pay into the unemployment system, when they let people go and those individuals then utilize that pile of money, your tax rate goes up. The next time you hire somebody, you have to pay a higher tax rate and put contribute more into that pot of money because you let somebody go and your employees use that pot of money. So this this rule is there to incentivize businesses to retain their employees. Now, that's that's a good thing, you know, to the extent that we don't want people being fired, you know, willy nilly and then out on the street because they, when they didn't do anything wrong. But it can be it can be a tricky thing because you need some flexibility to take people on and and let people go as it works for your business. And so. So a couple of things um, in at some situations, paying more into the unemployment insurance system might simply be the best choice. Um, letting that person go now, even though your tax rate is going to go up because they use the system still might be the better choice. 
um, overall uh, because they're costing you more money um, by keeping them on every day. The second thing is you might want to know a little bit more about when your individual can draw on unemployment insurance and when they cannot. And you need to know that well ahead of time if you want to use that to guide your actions. You need a paper trail. When you go to that judge and say, no, I don't think this person should get unemployment, you're going to need evidence. Okay, this was the grievance. This person was informed of this grievance. They were given the opportunity to correct it. They refused to correct it. So that's where we get more to the point of willful negligence. And you've got to have that paper trail. Most managers, farm or otherwise, um, neglect that paper trail. They just don't take the time to document um, when employees are behaving poorly, um, document the instruction that they were given to improve that behavior, um, and the follow-through. But that kind of stuff is is really important um, to avoid an unemployment insurance claim. So that's a good one. And the last thing I want to note is that uh, many the federal government, the federal unemployment insurance program, and many state employment insurance programs have a huge exemption for um, small farms. And so once you get to the level of five or six employees, you might need to start paying into the system. But under that, um, it's uh, it's not your concern from a tax perspective. The flip side of that is that your individuals cannot take advantage of unemployment insurance if they are let go. Some some farmers let uh, let employees go and you know feel bad about it and want them to have the opportunity to to draw on unemployment insurance. But if you weren't paying into the system, your employees can't take advantage of it. Even if the un- unemployment happened, not because you were firing somebody, right. but say because you had a hailstorm and your season came to an end. Exactly. With that, then let's turn to our lightning round. Um, we're obviously going to have to do this a little bit differently because this has been a very topic focused podcast rather than focused on, on a farm, but, uh, and, and because we've also got two of you. So I'm going to start with you, Rachel, what's your favorite legal tool for farmers? Oh, great question. You know what, what I think is a really cool uh, tool in this uh, modern age where we have podcasts and we have the internet and we have all of these resources to, uh, to get answers um, on anything, I'd like to plug the reference librarian. The reference librarian is a really powerful tool. These are real people who are trained to find answers for people. They're the original Google, and they're another source that you can turn to to find um, answers on the law. Now, you know, they're not attorneys. They can't give you legal advice or, you know, read and interpret the law for you necessarily, but they can help you get um, the documents that you need to begin to understand the law on your own. I especially like them because many farmers do not have the internet access that they deserve and need to run their businesses. And so those offline approaches like a librarian are really powerful. Great. Cassie, what's the weirdest labor-related thing that's happened on your farm? Well, okay, it had nothing to do with the law, but I think the weirdest labor-related experience on our farm was just the interpersonal. um, This is a topic we never touched on, but uh, we had two employees that began dating one another, but uh, we all knew that they were married outside of the farm to other people. So uh, that was the weirdest labor-related uh, season was that that experience of of uh, being managers and watching this all go down and just keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> wow! Yeah! Wow! <laughs> that was the weirdest one. All right. So, Rachel, if there was one thing that you wish all of your farmers knew about labor law, 
what would that one thing be? Well, it wouldn't even be a legal tidbit. I would go back to the uh, to, to what I said at the beginning, which is think positive. The law is what we um, in this democracy have decided collectively is the best way to um, to govern the relationship between employers and employees. It's not always the way that everybody agrees with. It's not always what's going to work best for your farm. But if you take that attitude that this is about developing um, good relationships, it's about, uh, you know, respecting the folks who do work on your farm. Um, it's about helping our economy um, be strong and uh, be productive. You can you can open up your creativity you can begin to think like Cassie, okay, how's overtime going to work for us, whether or not we're required to do it. Um, and that's, that's where the real power and potential um, of your employment program is, is when you can look at it and say, how do we achieve our farm's objectives um, through these rules? That's great. And Cassie, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning employer self one thing, what would it be? For farmers who um, have to wear glasses, uh, transition lenses are those lenses that, you know, turn into sunglasses automatically and then like kind of turn not into sunglasses when you go back into the shade. You okay. know what I'm talking about? Yep. So instead of having prescription glasses or prescription sunglasses or going back and forth and do you wear contacts, I would have just worn the dorky transition lenses from the very beginning. But on a more serious note, <laughs> I would tell my, my younger farmer self that uh, to not fight so hard against the lifestyle aspect of farming from the beginning to just allow it to come in sooner, to sort of accept that farming is a lifestyle and not a job. Uh, if I could have done that sooner, that would have helped me a lot. Great. Rachel and Cassie, thank you so much for being on the farmer to farmer podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thanks. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 63 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Armstrong. That's A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G. If you enjoy the podcast, I'll bet you'd enjoy my email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. You can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Purple Pitchfork, that's my my business that kind of has the umbrella over Farmer to Farmer podcast might be interested to check that out for information and resources. Also, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach an ever-growing circle of listeners. One more thing, I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions I received through the contact form on the farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Keep the tractor running.